If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com slash support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns. And I just really appreciate our alignment there. So next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, Father's Day is coming up and they have some really fun and special gift sets as well. You can shop their socks at ConsciousStep.com and use our code GREENDREAMER for 20% off. Again, it's ConsciousStep.com and GREENDREAMER for 20% off. And incidentally, I want to explain that the leaders of these countries know that if we economic hitmen fail, if they don't buy into the system that we're advocating, they're likely to get overthrown in coups or assassinated by people we call the jackals. Leaders of these countries are very incentivated to take on these debts, these loans, these, these chains of debt, basically slave chains of debt, because first of all, they and their cronies are going to make a lot of money. They're going to do well off this. And second of all, if they don't do it, They'll probably go out. I had I had two clients, the president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and, and the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos, who refused to play this game, and they both died in very, very suspicious private plane crashes uh, within three months of each other. Well, we have a really fascinating conversation today with John Perkins, who's an activist, the author of his new book, Touching the Jaguar, and also the author of his previous New York Times bestseller, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He's also a former chief economist at a major consulting firm where he advised the World Bank, United Nations, Fortune 500 corporations, and the United States and other governments. But a lot of this was part of his previous work as an economic hitman, that he's since risked his life to become pretty much a whistleblower on. So you're going to hear all about what that work entailed and how economic hitmen to this day 
perpetrate modern-day imperialism and colonialism, how we can transform our current death economy into a life economy and what that might look like, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. It was an interesting time because I just graduated from business school, and I joined the Peace Corps primarily to avoid the Vietnam draft. I just didn't believe in the war in Vietnam at all. Mm. And the Peace Corps offered a potential draft deferment. So I joined and was sent deep into the Amazon rainforest in, in Ecuador into what's called Schwa territory. The Schwa are indigenous people who at that time were living very, very much hunter and gatherer lives. And I was sent deep, deep into the, into the rainforest to help them form credit and savings co-ops, which was very ironic because they, once I got there, I discovered they had no money. There was no way they could form credit and savings co-ops. I was on a fool's mission, but that's what the Peace Corps had sent me in to do. After a month or so, I, I became very, very ill. I couldn't keep any food down, and I couldn't really, I couldn't even stand up on my own. I was dying, and it was a like a, a full day's walk at least under normal conditions if i had been able to walk through dense jungle to the nearest dirt road that then wound its way for about 10,000 feet up high into the andes and if i could find a rickety old bus it would take me about 2 days to get to the nearest medical facility after mm-hmm. i'd once got out of the <laughs> to get to the road there was absolutely no way i could do this late one afternoon the school teacher, who was one of the few people I could communicate with, I, I spoke very poor, basic Spanish. He spoke Spanish. Most everybody else spoke schwa. The school teacher comes up to me, and he's leading an, an old man. And he says, this guy's the shaman. Well, it was 1969, Camilla, and, and I'd never uh, really, I'd never even heard of a shaman. I'd, I'd heard of, of witch doctors, but I'd never heard of a, of a shaman. And yet... So this school teacher says to me, well, he can heal you tonight. So I, I said to myself, I, well, you know, I didn't, it was, it was the best option I had going. And so, well, you can only imagine, Camille, what it would be like to be in that situation. <laughs> so that night he did heal me. And really what, what happened was I uh, went into this deep trance. He took me into a, what we call a shamanic journey or a, a vision quest. And while I was in this trance state, I saw this amorphous figure in front of me. And the, and the shaman said, and this is all translated, but he says, touch the jaguar. And I'm, I'm terrified at this point. I look all around like we're in the jungle. Where's the jaguar? <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. Uh, you know, touch, touch the jaguar that you see. And this amorphous figure turned into the face of a jaguar. I, at that point, heard a voice. It was like my mother's voice saying, the food and drink will kill you. And what I suddenly realized, so, you know, I was raised 300 years of Yankee Calvinists in New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, very mild, boring foods, really. Suddenly, we're, I'm eating very strange foods, a, a delicacy of squirming white grubs taken out of a rotting log that you eat 
live. <laughs> and nobody drinks the water, the river water because they know you, that it's dangerous. The rivers are filled with organic matter. So they make a kind of beer called tricha, with the women chewing manioc root and spitting it. And then it sets up a fermentation process, and you can then add water to it. So I'm drinking a lot of tricha because you got to rehydrate. And I'm eating a lot of squirming white grubs, or, or worse, because there was no Perrier and there was no cliff bars. But I realized on this vision quest that every time I was eating these things, I was hearing a voice in my head saying, it'll kill you. At the same time, Kamea, I, I saw uh, how incredibly healthy the, the Shua are, very robust and vital people, hunters and gatherers. And some of them live to be very, very old if they're not killed in hunting accidents or, you know, run, or tip, tip over a canoe or bitten by a poisonous snake or something. They live to be very old. So on that, that evening, I saw that it wasn't the food and drink killing me. It was my perception, my mindset. And the next day I was healthy, and the shaman required that I become his apprentice, which, of course, I had no interest in doing. I graduated from business school. It's 1969. <laughs> <laughs> There's no future in shamanism. There is now, but there wasn't then. But he saved my life. And, and what I learned from him, and then over the next years as I traveled around to places like Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and studied with shamans in many other parts of the world, I learned that a common thread through shamanism is what he taught me, and that is that our perceptions mold our reality. Mm. We can change our reality by changing our perceptions. So after this profound experience, you actually went on to becoming an economic hitman, as shared in your notable New York Times bestselling book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Can you first tell our listener who has no idea what you're talking about, what exactly an economic hitman is, and then how you went from being that Peace Corps volunteer to taking on this role? Yes, yeah, so Kamei, I was, as I said, I, I graduated from business school. When I got out of the Peace Corps, I was in for about three years. I did what I'd been trained to do. I became an economist with a major consulting firm and, and very quickly rose to chief economist. But what I really was was an economic hitman. My job, and I had a, I had a decent-sized staff, three, four dozen people. My job was to identify countries with resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sisters, but the money didn't go to the country. It went to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country, our engineering and equipment manufacturing companies, to build power plants and highways and industrial parks and other things that helped a few rich families who owned the industries and the, and the banks and the shopping malls. They benefited from, from the electricity and, and so forth. And it helped the economy grow because these people really represent the statistics in the economy, the GDP. And so that's what I've been trained to do. I've been trained to believe that if you invest this kind of money into these, into these countries, you help everybody. I believe that for a while. And also, of course, it was making huge profits for our own corporations. But over time, I began to see that the statistics were very skewed. The GDP really represents a few wealthy people more than anybody else. And that while the wealthy people were getting wealthier and doing well, and the GDP statistically was showing growth, the majority of the people were suffering. Money was diverted from health, education, and other social services to pay off the debt, the interest on the debt. 
And in the end, the debt couldn't be repaid. And so we economic hitmen would go back in, usually under the guise of the International Monetary Fund, and restructure the loan and under conditionalities. And the conditions would be things like the country would have to sell its resource, oil or whatever, real cheap to our corporations without mm-hmm. any environmental or social regulations or sell sell off their their major public sector businesses like water and sewage system, electrical utilities, schools, and so on, to our investors at, at cut rate prices, things like that. And I, I, over time, I began to see that th- this system wasn't working. It was very skewed in favor of the wealthy. And so I, <laughs> I, I did this for 10 years, and then I, I finally got out. So often in our dominant Western cultures, the dynamic that's portrayed between our so-called more developed countries and developing countries is one that is saviorist. So, you know, oh, look at how poor they are. They don't have proper roads. They don't have air-conditioned nice buildings. They don't have efficient transportation systems. They don't have these giant malls and giant supermarkets where you can get anything you could possibly need. So they need our help. And I think this sort of common public perception also feeds into justifying the type of work that you did. Can you unveil to us why this view is really just sugarcoating the reality and how it might be a way of furthering imperialism just in this modern world? Yes. Uh, well, Kamea, that's what I came to understand in the end, uh, is that, that I was not helping the majority of the people in these countries. I was, I was fostering colonialism, imperialism. If you take almost any country in the world, though, let's, let's look at the United States. Three individuals in this country we know have as much wealth as the bottom economic half of the population. If those three individuals last year made 10% on their investments and the bottom half of the population lost 3%, the GDP would still show a growth of something slightly under 5%. And so I began to see that these statistics were skewed totally in favor of the, of the wealthy, and that this whole process is aimed at, at helping our corporations and helping us put these countries in debt, helping put them at our mercy. And incidentally, I want to explain that the leaders of these countries know that if we economic hitmen fail, if they don't buy into the system that we're advocating, they're likely to get overthrown in coups or assassinated by people we call the jackals. And these are these are people who, you know, the United States has admitted that, that we have played a huge role in, in the overthrow and, and, and assassination of Salvador Allende of Chile. Some people think he committed suicide. I think it was assassination. But in any case, he was overthrown by a CIA-fostered coup. Allende of, Allende of Chile, Arbenz of Guatemala, Lumumba of the Congo, Diem of, of, Ziem of, of Vietnam, Mossadegh of Iran. <laughs> the right. list goes on and on and on and on. So... Leaders of these countries are very incentivated to take on these debts, these loans, these these chains of debt, basically slave chains of debt, because first of all, they and their cronies are going to make a lot of money. They're going to do well off this. And second of all, if they don't do it, they'll probably go out. I had I had two clients, the president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and, and the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos, who refused to play this game. And they both died in very, very suspicious private plane crashes uh, within three months of each other. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, since this is a this is really more so a predatory relationship that's disguised as altruism or saviorism, 
what happens when the leaders in other countries recognize this for exactly what it is and they reject the help or deny this sort of U.S. economic intervention? So it sounds like our U.S. government still exerts its control by supporting these coups and overthrowing these dictators and so forth. But then I guess the general public might look at this social unrest in these countries and not really recognize that our own country played a role in that. Yeah, often we send in agents that cause social unrest. There's been a lot written about that in recent years, and we've got people who are very good at that. We also launch big media campaigns. So to paint, for example, Allende in, in Chile, to paint him as a as a communist. He was a socialist, but he was not a communist. He wasn't he wasn't pro Russia. Fairly recently, two thousand nine, we overthrew the democratically elected president of Honduras, uh, President Manuel Zelaya. And there was a huge uh, campaign, a public relations campaign launched in the, in the United States and elsewhere, painting him as a as a crony of Castro and and uh, Russia, Putin, and and so on and so forth, which was absolutely not true. Mm. <laughs> the guy had raised raised minimum wages by sixty percent, and he was trying to control the the destruction of land by Chiquita and and Dole and other companies that used a lot of chemicals on on the land. And that's why he was eventually taken out in a in a CIA-sponsored coup. And that was just, you know, 19, that was 2009. Right. How well do you think our general public is able to see past these things that we just discussed? Or do you feel like most people just buy into the media propaganda that is pushed upon us? Well, yeah, most people buy into the propaganda. It's very strong. And we want to believe it. You know, who we? I, I love America. I love the United States. I, my family goes back more than 300 years here, fought in the American Revolution. And I don't want to believe some of this stuff. But, you know, You've seen it. I, I, I've seen it. I, you know, there's, there's a story behind the story. We'd prefer to believe the propaganda, basically. And there's always an element of truth. So you can say that Zelaya of Honduras, yes, he was he was socialistic in that he was increasing minimum wage, and he was trying to take land out of the hands of, of big corporations that were, in essence, destroying the land and put it back in the hands of peasants who use much more sustainable forms of agriculture. So, so there was that truth, but, the, but then to paint him and he was doing this because Putin wanted him to do it or Castro wanted him to do it or, or whatever, that, that was the lie behind it. But that's, that's put out there. Mm. It's, you know, most people don't pay much attention to what's going on in Honduras. Those who do want to believe that we're doing the right thing. As I said, I, I want to believe we're doing the right thing. But once I knew what I was doing as an economic hitman, that's the six or seven years in that job. I didn't really want to believe what I knew to be the facts behind what I was doing. I was making a very good salary. I was flying first class around the world, staying in the finest hotels, wine and dining with presidents. I didn't want to believe that what I was doing was wrong. And that's a, it's a very, very seductive policy. And that's exactly what this touching the Jaguar is about. So I mentioned that at the beginning, you know, my experience when I was very sick. But this touching the Jaguar, which is the title of, of my new book, transforming fear into action to change your life in the world. When we touch that jaguar, we, we recognize that the message we've been given, like when I was in the Amazon, the voice that said it'll kill you is a false message. Mm -hmm. And we need to touch it. We, we can't run from it. We can't hide from it. We need to touch it. And we need to take the power from it and turn it around and say, in my case, 
this food, this spit beer, <laughs> and these gourmet white grubs. Well, this is very organic, local food, and it's highly nutritious, and it's helping these people live very long lives, so I guess it can help me too. It's turning that around. And, and that's where we're at right now. We, we really need to understand that the messages we're getting, including the one from the coronavirus, that we must turn the system around. We must do better. I'm curious, have you returned to some of the places where you initially acted as an economic hitman to witness the changes that have occurred as a direct or indirect impact of, of what you've done? And if so, what revelations may that have given you at a personal level? I, I do this all the time or did until this virus hit. Every year I, I take groups of people to the indigenous people of Guatemala, the Mayan people, and, and the Kogi of Colombia, and several trips into, into Ecuador, into the Amazon where I was in that area, and into the high Andes. And I've been taking people to Tibet, to Chinese-controlled Tibet, because the Chinese are now doing something very similar also. And I spent a lot of time going back to these places. Yes, indeed. And people, you know, your listeners, I, I think I'll still, I think I'll be doing the trip to the Maya in January. Let's hope so. I can go to my website, johnperkins.org, if they want to join me. But it's very interesting to go back and see the lessons these people learn and how much they really want to help us now turn ourselves around. They want to help us understand that we've been on this course of destruction, what I call creating a death economy. That's really what I did in the economic system that is, in, in fact, consuming itself into extinction. It's destroying itself. And because it's all based on the idea that you've got to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental cost. And indigenous cultures, and throughout history, most of us have been in indigenous cultures up until fairly recently, have what's called the life economy, an economic system that's totally sustainable, that pays people to clean up pollution and regenerate destroyed environments and come up with new technologies that don't ravage the earth, that, 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 that use the wind and the, and the air and the, the, the sun and so on and so forth to, to create energy that, that, are, that are, in fact, regenerative. Right. So I guess throughout the decades and throughout the years, your perspective of who's helping who has really shifted, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think there's very strong messages. There's, a, there's an ancient legend of the eagle and the condor, which says that for many, many years, people that we'd call indigenous people, condor people, would take one route and, and uh, the eagle people would take another. And neither is good nor bad, but the eagle people are very oriented toward industry and science and, and technology and industry. And the condor people are very oriented toward passion, toward intuition, toward living close to the earth. And these roots would go in different directions. And then it was said that around the year 2000, they would really start to reinforce each other and, and learn from each other. And, of course, we, we, we saw this beginning to happen in the early 90s when we, our people took an interest in new age things, shamanism, indigenous cultures, and, and they wanted to share with us. And it's been growing ever since. So, yes, there's this coming together, this learning from both of us. We both have to learn. It's helpful to the indigenous people to know some of the scientific findings that, have, that, have, that come out of, out of studies of rainforests and animals and plants. And it's very helpful for us to understand the importance of feeling a total connection to nature and its ability to rejuvenate itself if we just work with it rather than trying to constantly control and dominate it. 
And just real quick, I really want to acknowledge you for the difficult work that you've been doing. You know, you quickly found yourself seduced into and deeply entrenched in a world that you realized you didn't want to be a part of. And it's really courageous of you to not just pivot as you did, but to essentially become a whistleblower on the inner workings and intentions of our government and the corporate world. Have you received retaliation for shining the light on what otherwise would have stayed unknown to so many people? And what were your hopes for getting this knowledge out there into the open? Well, thank you for saying that. And and, uh, as to retaliation, so in the the book, Touching the Jaguar, the new book, I, I talk about how uh, about three or four months after Confessions of an Economic Hitman came out in 2005, I was poisoned in New York. I was supposed to speak at the United Nations on a on a Tuesday morning and uh, Monday evening, Monday Monday afternoon and evening. I was poisoned and rushed to a, a hospital in New York, Lenox Hill, and they had re- removed about 70% of my colon, my large intestine, because wow. it had been totally damaged by this poison. So. There has been retaliation. I don't think it's been done by CIA or the NSA because one of the reasons I I wrote Confessions, I tried to write it back much earlier when I first got out of being an economic hitman in the early 80s as an expose. And I contacted other economic hitmen and jackals, people I knew. I was immediately received a phone call threatening my life and that of my infant daughter. And then I was offered a, a consulting job with a major competitor of the firm I'd been a chief economist for, but I was told I wouldn't have to do any work. They just wanted to use my resume, and they'd be willing to pay me a retainer's fee starting right then of half a million dollars. This is in the 1980s. Mm. Half a million wow. dollars is, is not in the blink yet today, but it, it was even more then. And so I'm, I'm getting the same deal that I've given to these presidents, the carrot and the stick. Here, you can, you know, we can either take you out or we can make you wealthy. Mm. And I have to say, I, I, I took the, the money. I was just told, just don't write the book. We'll give you this money. You, we don't, you just let us use your resume and don't write the book. But instead, I wrote five books on shamanism. And I took the money <laughs> that, that, that they gave me and went back and started a new career of pushing forward with these things, going back to the Amazon, helping the people that I'd been with, forming a couple of nonprofits, Dream Change, and co-founding the Pachamama Alliance. And then on 9-11... I was in the Amazon, and when I came home, I flew to Ground Zero, and at that point, I knew I had to write the book. But this time, I decided I wouldn't tell a soul I was writing it. I, it would be a confession rather than an expose. I wouldn't include other people's stories, just my own confession. And I figured that was my insurance policy. And once I got it in the hands of a very good New York agent, it starts going out to publishers. Anybody who's serious about trying to keep me quiet is not going to kill me because that's, I'm going to be a martyr, and it's going to sell a lot of books. And then a guy did poison me, and and uh, but uh, I'm pretty sure we we were, ne- were never able to find him. He, I had lunch with him. He was a, he portrayed himself as a journalist, and well, all we had was his email address. And he disappeared after that. And any in any case, I had no. There was actually no proof that he had poisoned me. I, mean, I couldn't prove that he'd done done this. All I could prove is that something that day had destroyed my large intestine. So, any case, long story short. <laughs> um, it became pretty obvious that this guy was probably a fanatic that didn't like what I wrote or, or didn't like what I'd done or didn't like that I that I exposed what I'd done. We don't know which, but probably he was not a professional. If he was a professional, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. But yeah, there was a risk. But I've got to say this, Camille, that the greater risk for me is being quiet. I have a 
now a grandson who's 12 years old, as well as his daughter that I mentioned earlier. And being quiet is no, no longer an option. Mm. We know that we're headed toward disaster. Our governmental social economic system, what we call the death economy, is not working. It's dysfunctional. And all the problems that we have today, the climate change, income inequality, species extinction, now the coronavirus, these are symptoms of a much greater disease, which is this death economy. And we got to turn around. And so I got to do this for my, for my grandson and all of his brothers and sisters of all species of all over the planet. It's, it's, it's imperative that we move forward and, and turn these things around. Really, really powerful. And as you mentioned, our current economic system is fundamentally at odds with life on Earth. So in addition to often exploited labor, the death and decay of the living world is what feeds into the growth of our GDP, which is a human construct, but somehow propped up as being more important and more real than our biological needs for living and thriving. So crucially, you say we need to move beyond our death economy into a life life economy. I'm curious if you can paint a picture of what a life economy would look like, and is it even possible for monetary wealth creation to not come from transforming the abundance and, and riches of the living world into our man-made ideas of monetary riches? How can the two work together? Well, if we look historically out of the 250,000 years or so that we've been humans, Almost all of that time, we, we lived in life economies. It's only been within the last well, blink of a blink of history. And you, you could go back a couple of thousand years and say our determination, our obsession with dominating nature started back then. But it's really taken off since World War II, and especially you know in the last couple of decades. But we all come from these cultures that that lived a life economy. So if we want to look at what what this would mean today, let, let's say that you know like something like over fifty dollars, around fifty two, fifty three dollars of every tax you pay to the U.S. government and the discretionary budget goes to the military. Now let's say if instead of paying Raytheon and General Dynamics to make tanks and missiles and so forth, we instead paid them to discover new equipment and, and build equipment or processes that will clean up all all the plastic that's in the oceans. And all the oil that's been spilled all over the world, including basically every gas station in the world. And, and imagine if we, if, we, if we paid people to regenerate all the old mine pits and all the destroyed environments around the planet, just, just to pick up plastic that's, that's scattered everywhere, especially in other parts of the world. And imagine if we really devoted our energies to creating a better healthcare system, and that's become very obvious under the coronavirus, and, and an education system that really teaches us about sustainability and a whole new set of ways of, of looking at what it means to be human on this planet. We, we pay people to do these things. We start a new industry. And it also means, I think, smoothing out uh, the income inequality. So, so let's, let's tax the rich. <laughs> A lot more and put that money to helping people improve their lives, do better at work and, and so on and so forth. I see this idea of a life economy as being extremely positive. doesn't mean we're going to move back into caves. It means we are going to be more aware of what we buy. We're going to stop buying a lot of junk and we're going to devote ourselves more to buying things that are really important or to just enjoying our lives more, spending more time with our kids, spending more time learning to play the flute writing books, reading books, whatever it is that we, we care to do. 
So there's a, a, there's a tremendous opportunity here. I think it's fair to say you and I live in this very blessed time. We're blessed to be alive. We're blessed to be alive at this time when we can really listen to the message that's coming at us from the earth and, and from the destruction that we've caused in the past. Just as I listened to the message that came out of my experience as an economic hitman, and it made me determined to turn things around for the sake of myself, my daughter, and my grandson, and all of their brothers and sisters around the planet. And we know that from the pandemic, as of April 15th, Jeff Bezos's fortune had increased by an estimated $25 billion since January 1st, 2020. And this unprecedented wealth surge is larger than the GDP of Honduras at $23.9 billion in 2018. My concern is that if we continue down this path of corporations being able to legally profit at the expense of the exploitation of labor and resources, then we're going to end up in a world in which multinational corporations that are not democratically governed on the inside become more powerful than certain countries. Are we in fact already there as proven by the role of economic hitmen? And has this gotten better or worse since your years of doing this work? Well, yeah, we've been there. We're there. Corporations are more powerful than any government. Uh, in fact, I mean, the, the, the definition of capitalism basically is that the means of production and, and sales are not controlled by governments. They're owned by private individuals. And you have lots of competition. Those two basics. Well, our means of production are not controlled by governments for the most part. They're controlled by individuals. But what has happened is turned that on its head, and now these individuals control the governments. We know in the United States, we don't really have much of a democracy here. Nobody can get elected without huge financial support from big corporations or their primary stockholders. They control these politicians to a very high degree. We all know that. And, and we no longer have a very competitive economy. There's this parts of it that are, but for the most part, it's a it's an oligarchy. It's a, it's a monopolistic oligarchic type of economy where big big corporations push the little guys out of business time and time again. So we really don't have a true form of capitalism. We have something that a lot of economists, are, and including me, call a predatory form of capitalism. Right. And so these yeah we, we're there, and it, it's worse than when I was an economic hitman. Twelve years after publishing Confessions of an Economic Hitman, I wrote the new, I wrote two other books in between, and then I wrote The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. This was before Touching the Jaguar. And I wrote this new Confessions, which updated the old one 12 years later, because I saw that since I'd written that first one, things had gotten a lot worse. Not only did we still have people doing what I was doing in other countries, but we also had economic hitmen that were hitting our own people with huge amounts of credit card and, and educational debt, for example, mm. and pitting cities against each other, as, as Amazon did with New York and, and Northern Virginia, pitting them against each other like, okay, who will give us the biggest tax cuts and, and, and charge us the lowest wage rates? We'll, we'll go and we'll locate our next facility, our next plant in that city our next headquarters in that city. We've seen this over and over, pitting countries against each other, Indonesia against the Philippines, and on and on and on. Those are economic hitmen who not, who, in my case, I was pretty much generic. I wanted to bring the work home to American corporations. And I didn't really care what corporations, as long as mine got a piece of the action. Today, you still got that going on, but you've also got every major corporation, international corporation, has a whole cadre of economic hitmen out just promoting that corporation. So things had gotten worse. 
At the same time, there's a counter movement, as I mentioned before, conscious capitalism and, and B corporations, and my publisher, incidentally, is a B corporation. And so there's been this, this counter movement. There's been a revolution that's it's really a consciousness revolution. It's not a physical revolution. It's a consciousness revolution. And it's been growing around the world. And that was happening before the coronavirus. And my hope is that the coronavirus is going to push, push us much further in that direction. Right. But there'll be, a, there'll be a counter force, too, that'll try to stop that. I feel like it's really great that we have a consciousness revolution that may be quiet, but really powerful because, again, it all goes back to our individual perceptions. And then that sort of ripples on to creating real impacts in the world. But I guess just with our current power structure right now being so against all the changes that we want for the majority of the people, what is your idea of what we need to do to be able to shift this power dynamic? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So first of all, I think it's really important that each individual look to what they most want to do with the rest of their lives. Those five questions I mentioned earlier that are really outlined in the book and a workbook, incidentally, that you can get right away if you you pre-order the book. I'm not trying to do an advertisement here, but those questions are important ones. And it starts with, what do you most want to do with the rest of your life? Each of us as an individual needs to look at that. And how does that tie in? to helping other people. And again, it could be a very small group of people or a very large group of people. But what role does each of us play? And then I think all of us can start telling the positive story, the story about creating a life economy. And I think we can really look to these movements I mentioned earlier, B corporations, conscious capitalism. And a big one is that last August, the business board, which includes about 192 of the world's most powerful, most successful corporate executives, came out with a statement that basically supported a life economy. They said, we cannot just focus on maximizing short-term profits anymore. We've got to maximize assistance that we can to our employees, our consumers, our suppliers, and the communities where we work. That was an incredibly important statement. Now, all of us need to make sure that these executives uh, keep that promise. And they're looking to us, I believe. I know a number of these executives, and they say, hey, you know, I can't do this alone. I've got to have the consumers, the people who buy my products, the ones who work for me, the ones who invest in in my company, I've got to have them sending me emails or tweets or, or however we communicate and get all their social networking circles to do it. They're telling me, hey, I want you to get as many people as you can to say, Listen, corporation, I love your products. I'm not going to buy them anymore until you clean up the pollution you've caused or stop causing pollution or pay your workers in India a fair wage. And CEOs will say, once I've got a whole bunch of these letters, I can take these to our major stockholders and tell them we've got to listen to our employees. Otherwise, if I just move ahead and try to do this, I'm going to lose a little bit of market share. My stock prices are going to go down a little bit. And my top investors are going to fire me and replace me with someone who only cares about market share or stock prices. So I want to have a whole lot of consumer movement to back me up. And all these 192 executives that came out with a statement, they started the process of changing perception. Now it's up to us, you and me and all of your listeners, to get out there as consumers or as employees or as investors and, and, and support these people and let them know we intend to make sure that they keep their promises. We're only going to buy from, work for, invest in the corporations that are making the greatest effort 
to move forward with this life economy. None of them are perfect at this point, but there are some that are working much harder than others to make it happen, and we need to support them. And we need to let the kids know that we're no longer going to support them because they're not doing it. Green Dreamer for our mindful musical intermission. This is The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor Hall. When I look back on those gone back, all those mountains standing in my mind, I could have folded, could have What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? <laughs> well, my own. Touching the Jaguar is profound writing. I to say, I mean, writing it and diving deeply into these things has been very, very, very profound. And I happen to like very much Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! as a media outlet. I also, I think NPR has some pretty good stories. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? That I'm blessed to be alive at this time when the earth is speaking so loudly to us in so many ways, scientifically and shamanically, and we can listen to it. And I'm in a position to, to, to be a program and talk about this. What is one thing you're working on right now for your health? I go, I'm, I live in an area where I'm very close to some beautiful forests. I try to, I go into them every day and, and jog, sprint, and walk for about a couple of miles and do a lot of meditation. Meditation is, is very, very important, whether you're in a forest or wherever you are. Meditation and getting exercise in one way or another and then eating healthily. I'm basically vegetarian, except when I'm in cultures where that would be insulting. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Writing and promoting this book and having conversations with you and, and others on programs like this. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Well, having traveled around the world and seeing this consciousness revolution everywhere I go, many, many people everywhere are, are interested in what's in this change that's happening. And also hearing all the information that's coming out of the time of the coronavirus, where so many people are finally getting it, that we must change. And that this, this virus is telling us that we're going to change, whether we want to or not, we're going to. So let's change in a positive way. So it's www.johnperkins.org to learn more and stay updated on John's work, many books, including his latest one, Touching the Jaguar. And you can also follow him on Twitter at jperkinsauthor or on Facebook at johnperkinsauthor. John, thank you so much for joining us today for your courage in continuing to speak truth to power and for really inspiring us to think about what could be. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, I'd like to thank you, Kamea, for what you're doing on this program, for getting this message out, for helping to change the dream and make it a, a greener dream. And I'd like to say to all the Green Dreamers out there, keep dreaming green. 
and and changing the perception so that we create a, a greener perception and out of that we create a much greener reality. Keep up your great work, everyone, and thanks for being part of this.